Hi everyone, so a question that's come up a bit, and one that's been suggested on Twitter, is about a change in consciousness that's arguably one of the most profound, captivating, and enthralling that the human brain is capable of generating. In English, we have a very wide array of words to describe all of its different facets and expressions, from devotion and fidelity to passion and infatuation. It's also one of the oldest topics of ancient literature, with evidence of literature emerging from the feelings and experiences it generates dating to ancient Greek, Chinese, and Egyptian societies, as well as pre-literate societies. It's also a quintessentially human experience, influencing everything from cognition to emotion to behavior. We're talking about love. Okay, so first of all, why would love have evolved to occur? Are there advantages to being able to fall in love? Well, before we get started, a criticism of this research is that it's kind of impossible to identify like true causative evidence. We can only really extract evolutionary explanations by comparing like how humans reproduce and raise their offspring to how other animals do. Okay, but given that we have plenty of people that fall in love, uh, I assume that there must be some sort of advantage to falling in love. Right, it's a fair assumption that, you know, given Homo sapien as a species is doing pretty well, then whatever it is we evolved to do is probably advantageous. But if you think about it, that question depends entirely on time scale. Like today, it's been advantageous. But maybe we'll have some insane dictator with access to like apocalyptic nuclear weapons lose their mind because a neighboring despot took their mate. And the dictator ruins the whole earth because of how passionately angry they became. At that point, it's a disadvantage. The, the point being, be careful of falling into the post hoc ergo propter hoc mistake, which means after this, therefore resulting from it. In other words, just because we're capable of falling in love doesn't mean it's ultimately an advantageous strategy over a long enough time scale. But that said, there is an interesting theory that suggests that largely because of our ability to pair bond, more nuanced social interactions were able to form, motivating arguably irrational exertion to achieve more than just simple nutrition and reproduction. And falling in love can motivate some pretty strange behavior, like obsessions or really bad anxiety when you're around the person that you're crushing on. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and in fact, the earliest stages of love are actually kind of similar to psychiatric conditions like anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, in both behavior as well as at a physiological level. It turns out that when researchers measured level of what serotonin is converted to after being used in the brain, people with depression, OCD, and anxiety disorders, as well as people who had recently fallen in love, appear to have depleted levels of serotonin relative to people who have either not recently fallen in love or have been in a committed relationship for a while. And 12 to 18 months after the start of the relationship, serotonin levels returned to normal. And further implicating serotonin signaling in love, it turns out that a particular genetic variant of a serotonin receptor called the 5-HT2A receptor is associated with obsessive romantic attachment behavior. So that uh, overly attached girlfriend might have had that gene uh, receptor. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I feel kind of badly for her, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay, so that's really interesting. It's like the process of falling in love throws your brain into a state that's pretty irrational. Yeah, it's, it's definitely irrational compared to your mind states before experiencing love. And this makes sense, right? Like, this is the influence of evolution. Your brain is being manipulated by a surge of neurotransmission and hormone release to promote basically three main things. The desire to reproduce, the desire to defend your mate, and the desire to care for any potential offspring. Basically, all the things that are necessary to make babies and make sure they survive and we perpetuate the uh, population. Yep, and it even makes us evaluate our partners kind of irrationally. It turns out 
that uh, people in committed relationships will both downplay the attractiveness of other potential partners and exaggerate the attractiveness of their own partners. Right, so you think the person that you're with is significantly better than everyone else, and this helps to prevent you from cheating on or abandoning the parent of your kids. Yeah, exactly. And, and we can see this on display when we see people who are in severely abusive relationships who defend their abuser. It's an irrational evaluation of the value of their partner. And we can even pinpoint a likely culprit of this dynamic in the brain. So, so one of the various structures that are inhibited when in love is a prefrontal cortical structure. So this is like towards the front of the brain, which are very important to performing critical evaluations of the intentions and character of others. So basically you're saying is that our brain's system to find the potential flaws in other people is inhibited when we're falling in love. Yeah, like an important part of it for sure. Okay, so it can be irrational, but obviously it feels good to do. People like falling in love. So why can it do both things at the same time? Well, love can actually be pretty stressful. In fact, uh, in the early stages of love, activity in a circuit that connects the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and adrenal glands called the HPA axis increases, which increases the release of a stress-related hormone called cortisol. So, like right after falling in love, your body is in a state of elevated stress. Are you talking about like the feelings of butterflies and nervousness and anxiety and stuff like that? That's right, exactly. But over time, when people are in successful long-term relationships, activity in this very circuit is actually suppressed relative to people who haven't been in long-term relationships. So it's like a short-term increase in stress for the possibility of longer-term reduced stress. Okay, and besides the possibility of longer-term reduced stress and the short-term euphoria and, and lovey-dovey feelings, <laughs> is there any other personal benefit to being in love? Yeah, actually there is. Uh, it turns out that people are better at evaluating the emotional states of other people by their facial expressions when they're in committed relationships. And this is particularly true for males. So it might be that a society composed of primates like us uh, that can fall in love may be better able to function because we're more accurately sensitive to how the people around us are feeling when we're in committed relationships. So you should always hire FBI agents who are in... Relationships. <laughs> relationships. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, this isn't true for everybody. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's on a population level, right? And you said that there are particular neurotransmitters and hormones that become active that make all this happen. Uh, do we know what they are? So love has actually been pretty difficult to study. It started out being almost entirely the province of psychology. And different aspects of it have puzzled scientists and psychologists and sociologists for, like, centuries. For example, uh, there are many questions that inevitably emerge from asking what exactly is going on when someone is in love. Like, is there only one kind of love? Are there different stages of love? And what is it that distinguishes people who are able to maintain happy relationships for extended periods of time from those who can't or just fall out of love? Also, the physiological study of love has suffered from things like selection biases, where the group being studied doesn't really accurately reflect the greater population that it's supposed to represent, or the fact that potential gender differences aren't being accounted for, or potential differences between hetero and homosexuality. So this is like an ongoing uh, question that's still at the beginning stages of being explored. You think that we would devote more resources to understanding love given that it is the topic of almost every song, and every <laughs> poem, and every book ever yeah, written. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Okay, so with that understanding of the limitations of this research, what do we know so far? 
Right. Well, so we know that the mesolimbic dopaminergic circuit is definitely involved. For example, um, couples who have been in long-term and loving relationships exhibit significant activations of the dopamine-producing ventral tegmental area, or VTA. And this area sends dopamine to the forebrain striatum when exposed to imagery of their partner. And this elevated signal is above and beyond what happens when they're exposed to imagery of close friends or familiar faces. I suppose that it's not too surprising that mm -hmm. dopamine would be involved in lovey-dovey feelings. Yeah, nah, nothing too shocking. And there are other structures that are definitely involved as well, though, either by being activated or inhibited to promote love. And so we're talking about circuitry that have been implicated in general social attachment, like uh, that between a mother and a child. These are structures like the globus pallidus, the posterior cingulate gyrus, the insular cortex, the dorsal raphe nuclei that produce a lot of serotonin, and a bunch of others. And something that all of these structures share is high densities of oxytocin and vasopressin receptors. Just talk about this circuitry is applicable to these different types of love. What about love between like you and cheese or, you know, anything where you feel really strongly towards something, but it's not another person? Yeah, that's a really good question. So basically what you're referring to is called attachment. And so a lot of the same structures that are involved in becoming attached to some inanimate object can also be associated with love, but love also implicates other, other structures and circuitry that aren't necessarily usually involved in attachment to these inanimate objects, but sometimes are. And so, you know, we call that a disorder or a pathological behavior, right? Only when it becomes destructive to one's lifestyle. That's right, yeah, exactly. Okay, and tell me more about oxytocin. It's called the love hormone? That's right, uh, but it's definitely involved in much more than just love. Both oxytocin and vasopressin are hormones that are involved in a very wide variety of processes. So, so like oxytocin, for example, is involved in inducing the contractions during childbirth and lactation. And vasopressin is involved in cardiovascular and blood pressure regulation. Okay, so how is it that the same hormone can be involved in lactation and love? It's not like people start lactating when they fall in love. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, without going too far into the physiological weeds... It's basically because there are different receptors for each hormone that are present in the body and the brain. When oxytocin binds one receptor in the body, it'll induce one response, but a different receptor in the amygdala, for example, will result in inhibition of social anxiety. So it's all about where the activity is occurring. Now, how does the activity of these hormones result in love? Okay, well, I don't think it's possible at this point to talk about love without referring to prairie voles. Is that what you love? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. The object of Ian's affection. No. <laughs> no, a prairie vole is like a little rat-like critter that shares one particular behavior with humans. It's capable of pair bonding, or what we might call love. And it turns out that they have comparatively high densities of oxytocin in particular parts of the brain when we compare them to a pretty closely related cousin called montane voles. So what parts of the brain are we talking about here? Are we talking like front part of the brain, back part of the brain, <laughs> middle of the brain? So it's in areas that are particularly important to reward and social interaction. So, you know, we're talking about like the prelimbic cortex and then the nucleus accumbens, again, that ventral striatal forebrain structure and the amygdala. And so it turns out that when prairie voles mate, both oxytocin and vasopressin are released and this is necessary for their monogamy, which is lifelong, by the way. And if scientists prevent the release of these neurotransmitters, they are no longer monogamous at all. 
What's also interesting is that if we infuse dopamine directly into the nucleus accumbens, which is that ventral striatal, ventral forebrain structure, this also enhances pair bonding. However, only at moderate doses, very high doses actually don't result in pair bonding. And this is because there are different kinds of dopamine receptors present in the nucleus accumbens, and only one of them is associated with enhanced monogamy. And it turns out that after pair bonding, the number of dopamine receptors that prevents pair bonding actually increases in expression. And so this might be part of the reason that after finding a mate, these little critters no longer even look for other mates, even after their partners die. Something similar, though obviously far more complex and nuanced, might explain how it is that humans can be so devoted to one person for an extended period of time. The way their dopamine-sensitive forebrain responds to dopamine signals changes after the action of hormones that are released following falling in love. That's crazy. The humans don't necessarily stay monogamous for life, like these voles. Right, so this is definitely a pretty contentious topic, actually. There are adamant arguments on both sides. Either we evolved to be monogamous or we didn't. But I think the argument that's ultimately winning the day is going to be that we likely evolved to be monogamous for at least a period of time. There's a bunch of psychology research for and against monogamy. And almost all of it is purely correlative and not based in biology, so I'm not a huge fan. But the most convincing area of research, at least to me, is that when we compare our own physiology and social structures to other animals, we find some similarities and differences. So to skip over like a ton of very animated debates, there's an argument that we may have evolved to be the most amenable to cycles of monogamy. In other words, we're physiologically predisposed to being effectively monogamous for a birth and sort of childcare cycle until a child isn't like 100% helpless. And then the mechanisms that automatically promote monogamy aren't as dominant and other signals like promiscuity start to get louder and louder. So I've heard of the four-year itch. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's actually like a formal theory from a researcher uh, named Fisher. And her concept was that human-adult pair bonds last for like four years, the period during which offspring is most vulnerable. And after that, adult pair bonds can abate, which allows both parents to form new attachments. So she argues for something like serial monogamy rather than like lifelong attachments. And this model is found in a variety of other animals. It just so happens that the cycle is generally longer in humans because we take a fairly long time to develop. And there's also the famous seven-year itch. Is that a similar idea? Yeah, actually, she came up with that as well. She found that it can be stretched to around seven years if a couple has multiple children for basically the same reasons. Okay, so why is it then that some couples can stay happy together for even longer periods of time? Well, that's definitely an area of ongoing research, and it seems to have to do with an extension of that dopaminergic activity in the ventral midbrain when exposed to their partners. Like, researchers have shown that the number of years a couple has been married is directly correlated with the level of activation in the dopamine-receiving ventral striatum, or nucleus accumbens, and caudate in the forebrain. And another component that seems to be central to longer-term monogamy is activation in an area of the midbrain called the periaqueductal gray, which is implicated in a wide variety of things, like most parts of the midbrain, among them being attachment, particularly things like maternal love. Now, why it is that these signals aren't preserved in everybody, I can't answer. And I haven't found a good answer out there yet, but I bet it's going to look like some combination of genetic and environmental factors. Sounds like a familiar story. Yeah, yeah. I feel like most behavioral questions on like college uh, neurotests, like they basically boil down to some interaction between genes and environment. Okay, well, let's talk about why it is that some people cheat on their partners. Right. So I think it's 
helpful at this point to talk about how behaviors emerge from the brain in general. Think of the brain as something like a parliament or like the House of Representatives. Not everybody in there agrees with each other, and sometimes they'll start yelling over each other in disagreement until one voice wins out, and ultimately a position is victorious after all other positions are debated. So behavioral output is kind of similar. A bunch of different areas of the brain are contributing signals to areas that integrate all of them. And at different times, some of those structures are comparatively louder than the others and therefore dominate the behavioral output. So picture this. Think of how fearful you are when you're just sitting at home watching your favorite TV show. You're usually not too worried that you're in danger. To make it very simple, let's pretend that your level of fear is determined entirely by signaling in a circuit in your brain called the extended amygdala. At this state, when you're just watching your TV show, it's not contributing a very loud voice in that house of representatives of your mind. But then you hear an unexpected noise. Boom. (laughs) You're a little more alert, right? Something has changed. And now your extended amygdala is a little bit louder. It's more audible to the rest of the House of Representatives of your mind. Okay, now you hear someone trying to open your locked door forcefully. At this point, your extended amygdala is screaming and drowning out all of the rest of the House of Representatives. It's all that can be heard, and you're in near terror as a result. Well, a kind of similar thing is going on with promiscuity. People can still have feelings of sexual attraction to other partners when they're in a committed relationship. But when you're in love, the volume of the signals underlying those feelings just isn't very high. But for some people, after several years of monogamy, those promiscuity signals become louder and louder. And for some people, it becomes louder than the signals underlying fidelity. So it's kind of like a tug of war between competing drives. Yeah, that's right. And and while we don't know all of the physiological factors that determine how sensitive uh, people can be to signals for promiscuity versus fidelity, and there's obviously more than just physiological factors at play, there have been some pretty interesting genetic studies that suggest that certain genetic variants are correlated with an increased promiscuity in males. There's a gene for cheating? Not quite. It's more like there are different versions of the same gene, one of which is associated with the magnitude of partner bonding, perceived marital problems, and just marital status in general. And what does that gene encode? Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly, a particular vasopressin receptor. So it's all coming together. Right. Yeah, sort of. Not everyone is convinced by this research, and it's obviously more complicated than just one gene, right? But the interactions of of many different genetic variants, and of course environmental exposure, will all collaborate or conspire, right, to to result in how amenable a person is to to long-term monogamy. But this is an area of ongoing research at genetic, neuronal, circuit, behavioral, psychological, and and sociological levels. And something as complex and fundamental to the human experience is inevitably going to be pretty complicated. But as we continue to answer the question of how this all works, we're going to learn a lot about what motivates people to do the things they do, both rational and completely irrational. So it's going to be an area of research to continue to watch. I wanted to sing. I'm letting you sing. I know you didn't want me to do it. Let's hear it. Ready, turn it off. I really want to hear you sing. Come on, the whole world wants to hear it. No. Let's hear it. No. Let's hear it. No. It's got to be natural. What is?
It's not natural. It's not natural anymore. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even love. Sounding great. How long do you want this to go? <laughs> I'm just going to keep recording. I'm done. Let's talk about love.